Well, this morning we are going to be in Daniel chapter 2. If you are using the Pew Bible, I want to say that's on page 737, one of those black Bibles, uh, 737. And the running joke amongst some of us here is that Drew always gives me the awkward or difficult passages to teach. They generally end up with Jesus like spitting in some guy's eye or calling somebody a name. And uh, as we looked at the teaching schedule for the book of Daniel, uh, I couldn't help but notice that Daniel chapter 2 had fallen to me, which is the longest chapter in the book of Daniel, as many of you probably realized while Aaron was reading it. Uh, Thank you for that, by the way, Aaron. it's, uh, it is, the only chapter that actually comes close to it is chapter 11. Can you guess it? Who's teaching chapter 11, by the way? Uh-huh. I actually think that that's probably Drew's uh, way of giving me an excuse to go a bit long. Uh, since usually when the kids ministry people hear that I'm teaching, they start preparing an extra activity. Uh, but all joking aside, Daniel 2, Daniel 11 are amazing minds, uh, Full of the richness of God's goodness and sovereignty. Uh, so I'm pretty excited to teach them. Uh, since Aaron just uh, beautifully read the text for us, I won't uh, belabor that, but um, I want to recap a bit of Daniel chapter 1 as it sets the stage pretty importantly for us. So in Daniel chapter 1, uh, what we have is the introduction of the setting and a, key, and a few key characters for our text. In terms of the setting, we find out that the people of God are now in Babylon, one of the great superpowers of the ancient world. And they're under the king Nebuchadnezzar, one of the primary characters in our text as well. He has conquered Judah, the last stronghold of God's people, the former empire of David and Solomon, and he has taken them off into slavery. In human terms, we could say the conquest is quite clearly because of Nebuchadnezzar's military strategy and power. However, the text tells us the story that the true cause of the conquest of Judah is that God gave Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. That he gave them into the hands of Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. And if you have time, you might uh, find it interesting to go look at Jeremiah chapter 25. We don't have time this morning, but Jeremiah 25 is a prelude to what takes place in Daniel chapter 1. And Daniel, carry, Daniel 1 carries the message of God's sovereignty. As for the characters presented, I already mentioned Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, as well Daniel, the book's author, and Hananiah, who is renamed Shadrach, Mishael, renamed Meshach, Azariah, renamed Abednego. Each of them receives their new name on the basis of a cultural warfare or social engineering scheme that Babylon has undertaken. But the story of Daniel 1 is a story of how Daniel and his four friends subverted that. How they, with humble posture, pressed back against this work in order to pursue faithfulness to God. It should be noted that the notoriety that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have implies that this was uncommon for the Jewish people in exile. We would know far more names if it wasn't for merely those four. 
But the faithfulness of these four in the midst of their cultural exile is blessed by God, resulting in them receiving favor, resulting in them receiving academic and socio-political success. And as such, Daniel 1, 17 through 19 is indispensable scenery as we understand Daniel 2. Daniel 1, starting in verse 17, says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. In turning our attention to Daniel chapter 2, the narrative starts in both an ominous and yet fairly relatable manner. It begins, as I might assume many of you have experienced, with a man of power and responsibility experiencing sleepless nights and turmoil because of a recurring but singular dream. The text says his spirit was troubled and sleep left him. We can imagine the tossing and turning each night, the awaking in cold sweats with a start, the mind that cannot be silent as it processes the content of this dream. We can imagine as well that he was not particularly eager to share the content of the dream. As as a man like Nebuchadnezzar, with his sort of power, with his sort of responsibility, with his position, does not come to it without making enemies. But night after night, the dream returns. Hailing from a spiritual tradition that affirms that the gods spoke through dreams, Nebuchadnezzar was likely very eager to find out its meaning, to solve its mysteries. Is it a warning, maybe an omen of something to come? His kingdom and reign are only two years old at this point. There is so much to protect. It is only in its infancy. There are rules that must be made, there are decisions that must be cast, there are edicts that must be given, there are judgments that need the king's reflection, but sleep has fled from him. And if you've experienced that sort of thing, it is possible that you then understand how hard it is to make those sorts of decisions, to just think rationally and coherently when sleep is far from you. And so he awakes night after night restlessly, maybe with intermittent rushes of adrenaline that propel him out of his bed into the eerie sounds and yet silences of night. But in a world without screens or the capability of plugging your ears with audio sounds, he has nothing to distract him. And so the man who has conquered nations, who has brought low armies, cannot quell the thoughts of his mind cannot lay his head, his spirit, his soul to rest. And so we meet Nebuchadnezzar in this turmoil, and he finally turns to people who he thinks he can trust. The magi, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers, and he tells them of his troubled sleep and his restless spirit. But he lays out the terms and conditions They will not only tell him the interpretation of the dream, they must also tell him the dream itself. This, by the way, is a break in protocol. They would not have been prepared for it, and that's quite clear from the text. No king has ever asked this. 
But why? Nebuchadnezzar is having none of their delays, none of their requests for more information. This dream is of national security. This dream is a classified secret of the highest order. The advice he seeks needs not only to be good, it needs a test of truth, a test of veracity, so that he knows when he acts that he acts in line with what he is being told. And so he refuses to describe the dream to them because if they can describe the dream, then he can trust their words. One commentator notes, Nebuchadnezzar's experience was so vivid and troubling that he was reluctant to believe the Chaldeans. He does not want their omens or false interpretations. He desires a realistic and thorough evaluation of what he has seen. But when these supposed wise men ask for more data, he gets angry. Put them to death, he orders. And so they begin rounding up the wise men for some sort of mass execution. At which point the lead executioner arrives at the dorm room door of Daniel. He finds in Daniel none of the crazed terror of Nebuchadnezzar, none of the impending fear, though, of the wise men. Rather, he finds, as the text reports, Daniel with prudence and discretion. And Daniel asks, why is the decree so urgent? Actually, it makes sense at face value. If you're going to kill everybody anyway, what makes today any different than tomorrow? Why not hold off 24 hours? And Daniel goes in then and requests the king to appoint a time for him that he might show him the interpretation. Notice, by the way, that he does that before he prays. Not implying the prayer is irrelevant, actually implying that his trust in the God that he worships is so firm that he already believes that he will be shown the meaning. He already believes that God, as we just prayed from Psalm 125, will be that mountain around him, will protect him and provide for him. So Daniel is granted an audience the next day. The request brings a stay of execution for the wise men throughout the empire. And during the night, the mystery is revealed. The result, Daniel, now knowing that God alone has granted him salvation from this madman's rage, is worship. In poetry or song, Daniel praises God for his wisdom, for his power, for his provision. And then Daniel is brought before the king and he explains two things. First, the king's wise men were actually right. No one on earth could reveal this sort of thing to Nebuchadnezzar. The content of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams are locked in his head and no one on earth has access to that kind of information. It is the only refuge, the only place where things can be stored which nobody can get into. The second, though, is that there is a God in heaven who has given this dream, who desires to make himself, his will, his endgame for all of creation known, that God has shown it to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream and has since shown it to Daniel so that Daniel could make it known. And so Daniel explains the dream and the interpretation in verses 31 through 33. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding in brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. 
explains the sleepless nights. The head of the image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly iron and partly clay. Daniel explains that each of these substances represents a forthcoming world power, a forthcoming kingdom into the world. Commentators point out these four kingdoms are traditionally identified as Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece under Alexander the Great, and Rome. In fact, the descriptions given in this dream, though brief, are so precise that Bible scholars skeptical of prophecy and the veracity of what is claimed in the scriptures date this text well closer to the days of Jesus than the days of Nebuchadnezzar. Because the assumption is, without actually seeing these kingdoms, you would not be able to judge them and describe them that well. Drew said this last week, but isn't the scriptures amazing? Which is really just a way of saying, isn't our gracious, good, and sovereign God amazing? For these words, true, powerful, relevatory as they are, hold those characteristics because they flow from a God who is truth, who is powerful, and who desires to reveal himself. But more important than what these empires are, we should say, is the second half of these dreams. In 34 through 35, as you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken to pieces, and they became like chaff of the summer threshing floor. Chaff is these pieces of wheat that would fall away as you prepared your harvest to go to market or to go to the baker. And so it's these almost weightless outside husks. And how they would separate the chaff is they would toss it up into the air, the grain on a windy day, and the weight of the grain would pull it back down to the ground. But the weightlessness of the chaff meant the simple breeze could push it away. Now think about that, but instead of chaff, these are kingdoms made from metals. The image here then is destruction and disintegration on a level so great that only the finest particles of silver, gold, iron remain. Not enough weight in these metals to fall to the ground, but a simple breeze moves them onward. In verse 44, we find Daniel's interpretation. And in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And in response to Daniel's accurate reporting, which according to Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's own wise men was only possible with divine and supernatural abilities, Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face. A monarch, believed to have divine connection with the god Marduk, falls in a position of homage to a prophet of God to a prophet of Yahweh, and he proclaims the praises of the God of Israel. And Daniel and his friends receive, we are told, promotions. 
That is the content of Daniel chapter 2. Now, maybe I'm just not out of the rhythm of us teaching through Mark, and I haven't gotten used to Old Testament yet, but when I read this chapter, I see Jesus all over it. And so what I want to do is I want to walk a little bit through this narrative and point out a few things that I think direct us preparing our hearts as they prepare the Israelites' hearts to receive their coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. So three things I want to look at. The meaning of the wise men's plea. The meaning of Daniel's faithfulness in Babylon. And the meaning of this ever-expanding stone which will crush all kingdoms. So the meaning of the wise men's plea. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. There, is much po- there isn't much positive we could say about the wise men in this text. But we can at least applaud their honesty on this account. Both the Babylonian wise men and Daniel have the same answer to the king's request. No man has the ability within himself to do that. Why? Because only the one, the only one capable of looking into the heart or mind of a person and discerning his motives, discerning the secret thoughts, there is God. This is why Daniel is so effusive in praise to God. It is not anything in him that enables him to speak to Nebuchadnezzar concerning his dream. Rather, it is because God works through him. So him directing his praise to God is not false humility. It's not some sort of facade of holiness. It is Daniel speaking of the reality of how things are. Without God, I would not be able to tell you the content of that dream. Left to his own abilities, Daniel is in the same predicament as the wise men, but Daniel knows something that they do not. As Drew said last week, when Daniel was a young boy, the temple would have been reopened for the first time in generations. And the law and the histories of Israel were rediscovered, and revival and awakening began. As such, Daniel would have known that in truth, the dwelling place of the true God was once with humanity. Once long ago, God dwelt in a garden with his people, and he met them then later in a burning bush, and he spoke to them and led them with a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke, and he met them on a mountain and in a tent and eventually in the tabernacle. The presence of God was so intense in the temple where God was with flesh that it actually expelled the priests from ministering. 2 Chronicles 5, 13 through 14 says, And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in the praise and thanksgiving of the Lord. And when the song was raised with the trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise of the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because the cloud... For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Not only was God with man, but his presence, his glory was so intense that it expelled his own priests from the temple. 
So Daniel knew that the king, what the king was requesting was possible. Because there was a time when God dwelt with flesh. He needed only to rely on the word of God and the power of God, and so he prayed. I appreciate the exhortation of one commentator who noted concerning this text. I think the reason that we do not pray more, more faithfully and fervently, is because we do not feel the urgency. We tend to be self-sufficient, and we do not see our God as big enough. So there are times when God brings things like this into our lives and into the lives of our friends to bring us to our needs. You see, we read a story like Daniel's and we think, yeah, of course, I would spend more time in prayer and more time in my scriptures if I was in a situation, in a circumstance where I needed God to show up. Where my life depended upon it. Surely I would spend more time in scripture if I had found myself in a situation in which so many I loved, so many I relied on to give me wisdom and revelation were in dire straits. Maybe I would even consider fasting if the stakes were high enough. Really though? Because the truth is that is exactly where we are. The truth is there's something in the plea of the Chaldeans that lets us know that their situation is remarkably similar to ours. You see, we are in need of God showing up in order to save us, in order to save our neighbors, in order to save our friends and our family. None of that happens because of something in us. It happens because God shows up. Think about it. If God's standard for eternity in peace and comfort of heaven versus the fire and torment of hell is his law kept fully and completely, every I dotted, every T crossed, then we are in desperate need of God. When I get the opportunity to evangelize, my favorite thing I do is just read the Sermon on the Mount to people. You know, we don't have time for all of that right now, but let me just quote to you a little bit of it. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Jesus on the mountain says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, for I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? Your righteousness must what? Exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. People whose job, nine to five, sun up to sundown, was to study the law of God and live in light of it. Jesus would tell these people later on, hey, the Pharisees, they don't keep their own law, but you listen to what they say. And he says, what they say, you must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Their vocation involved memorization and teaching of the words of God. How on earth do you plan on exceeding them in righteousness? 
I mean, when you read that text, all of a sudden Romans 3.23 makes a ton of sense. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. No one is going to pass this test. The only person who can is, in fact, God himself. An acknowledgement which brings us right to the words of the Chaldeans. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or Chaldean. But wait. Because there's a hint of the answer in verse 11. The thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. What if, what if there was a way, and hear me out on this, a way in which God could dwell with flesh? No, 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 better yet, God could dwell in flesh. For God to take on our humanity. For God to live as if he was one of us. For God to sympathize with us, be tempted like us. To sit under the teaching of the law like us. To encounter the things of the world like us. And for God then, in spite of his righteousness and his faithfulness to his law, what if there was a way that he could give that to us? And that then all the things that the Old Testament talks about in terms of curses for not obeying, curses for being unfaithful, punishments for not following, what if those could be taken away? What if his obedience and legal success could be traded for our failure and illegality by his law? I mean, I know I'm getting a little bit out of hand because how, how on earth would we even know which guy was supposed to be God if he was able to do that? I mean, there have been billions of people who have lived throughout the world, throughout all of history. How could we pick just one? Well, let's use their words. There is not a man on earth who can make, who can meet the king's demands. In other words, if somebody could look into the content of the king's mind, if somebody could look into his mind, his heart, his soul, and see what was there and tell him with utmost veracity, with every semblance of accuracy, with complete truth, if somebody could do that, that man. Mark 2.8, and immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves means not out loud, inside themselves, in their hearts, in their souls, in their spirits, in their minds. Matthew 12.25, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. Luke 6.8, he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with a withered hand, come and stand here. Oh, the amazing providence of God that a test passed for Jesus' divinity would come from the mouths of magi pagan worshipers. They meant to give a simple plea for mercy, and in saying what they said, they spoke more than they knew. Their plea for mercy for this king's impossible standard, was in effect a plea, a signal 
to remind us not only that we need saving, but how we need saving. We need a God whose dwelling place is with flesh. This is the good news of the gospel. That although our first ancestors rebelled against God, and in doing so, sin and death crept into the soul of all humanity, in fact, the entire world, and passed it down from generation to generation, such that we might cry about God's own impossible standard. That standard is met. The righteousness is qualified. The holiness is satisfied in Jesus Christ. And it's actually only in Jesus meeting that standard that we might be found faithful. That we might, if we place our faith in him. Which is why as we turn to Daniel's faithfulness, not just this morning, but for the duration of the study, I don't want you to think of what Daniel does as a burden. We'll be talking about how faithful Daniel is. And when you see it, you might think, how could I, if I'm supposed to see Christ as my example, but that seems too high for me. Daniel's example seems almost equally high. But I want you to hear, when we point to Daniel's faithfulness, like I'm about to do in a minute, I don't want you to hear something you must do, something you're required to do, but rather I want you to hear that instead of a weight on your shoulders, that Daniel's faithfulness is an example of the joyful response we can have, we can give to the God who has made a way for us to be saved. So let's think about the meaning of Daniel's faithfulness. There's no one verse to point to when we consider this. It's just in the text of the story. It's the feeling of it as even Aaron read it out loud to us. What strikes me as interesting, though, is that Daniel's faithfulness to God is not just a blessing to himself, but is a blessing to the pagan nation in which he lived. In the previous chapter, Daniel's faithfulness led God to giving Daniel and his friend wisdom. But not just wisdom so that they could be smart. Wisdom in service of a pagan country and a king who worshipped idols. In this chapter, Daniel's faithfulness gives the pagan king peace of mind. For the rest of this book, we're not going to hear about Nebuchadnezzar's failures to sleep again. Throughout the rest of the book, we will see similar results. But it should not be all that surprising, because if we knew our Old Testaments well, we would know that that is one of the purposes for which God gave Judah into the hands of Babylon. Jeremiah 29, 4-7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So just real quick, Jeremiah is writing a letter from Jerusalem where he was, Jerusalem has been conquered and he was left behind, and he has sent this letter to Babylon for Daniel and his friends, for the exiles taken away. And he says to them, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and daughters, give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do, uh, and do not decrease. And get this, but seek the welfare of the city 
where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is a recurring theme throughout Scripture. Joseph, from God's chosen line, sent to Egypt to save them from a famine. The kindness of a Jewish slave girl in 2 Kings 5, such that her master Naaman might be brought to Elisha and his leprosy healed. It's good to keep in mind that this is no mere kindness to a disinterested third party. What is taking place in each of those examples is that God's people or person blesses that which would be considered his oppressor. Daniel, then, is not only embodying Jeremiah's instructions, but Jesus's as well. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And pause there before I read the rest of this. The reason why you're called sons of your Father who is in heaven if you do that is because when you... When you show kindness to your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, you embody the characteristics of God as a son embodies the physical resemblance to his father. When you look at somebody and you see in them their mom's eyes, their dad's brow, when you hear the intonation of their family's voice, In those same ways, we are supposed to reflect God's characteristics such that when people look at us, they see a resemblance to our Heavenly Father. And what does he say that resemblance is attached to? Loving your enemy and praying for them. Going on, for God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Meaning that God cares just as much for those who follow him as for those who don't. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. What he's saying is that we must be distinct, and if we're not loving our enemies, we look like just everybody else. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A few practical comments about this passage. We live in a world of hate. I don't even think, given how this year has begun and the contents of much of last year, that I even have to prove that to you. We look across the political aisle, just to take one example, and we don't see friends and neighbors whose political ideology tells us that they believe a different tax policy might make a better America than our tax policy. Instead, we see enemies. And so we mock, not friendly jests like you might rib some of your friends, but in meanness and honestly with startling candor about the nature of our hearts. And so we criticize the libs or the deplorables, whatever label you want to put on it. To be totally honest, I am most likely of the worst of offenders on this score as with many others. I find far too often myself in the crosshairs of James 3.10. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. 
my brothers, this ought not be so. I wonder how much more effective might I be if I lifted up those who differ in prayer, whether enemies or acquaintances. How many people might have come to know Jesus through watching me and hearing my words if I didn't, if I didn't buy cheap laughs with cruel words, but instead showed them love? We live in an exile, and let's make no qualms or contentions about it. But let's look to the meaning of Daniel's faithfulness. That he has been saved not only for his good, but for the good of those around him. That he has been saved for God's glory and to seek the good of Babylon and its king Nebuchadnezzar. Where we live, who our neighbors are, is no accident, but is in fact quite the opposite by God's design and his good providence. Who you live around, who you interact with. They have been chosen by the God. The God who 1 Timothy 2.4 says desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Living in light of that, by the way, we might fulfill the exhortation Dustin gave us just a few weeks ago to see Jesus not only as our Savior, but as our example. Romans 5.10 tells us that while we were enemies of God, that word, by the way, is military in its usage mostly. That means enemy combatants. While we were enemy combatants of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Quite an example. God did not wait until we had become more friendly. No, Jesus entered the world surrounded by enemy combatants, and he gave his life for them. Such a message is antithetical to the sort of us versus them mentality that runs rife through our culture. but how on earth do we do that? The example of Jesus is so high and so heavy sometimes. This, I think, is where Daniel's dream becomes of utmost importance. Sorry, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel's interpretation. Because I honestly think the only way to live that way in this world is to understand the singular reality that we are not citizens of this world. No earthly city or kingdom ought to hold our allegiance, but that our true home is the city of, to use the more biblical language, the king of, kingdom of God. But that is easier said than done. Simply consider this dream. Nebuchadnezzar sees various metals put together. Some are of great value, some are of great strength, but each fits into the next piece of the puzzle, like empires rise and fall throughout history. Until a stone, seemingly small from Daniel's telling, is cut from a mountain and dropped on the toe of the statue, resulting in complete disintegration. 
This vision appears to provide relief to Nebuchadnezzar, which is no wonder. The interpretation reveals that whatever is going to happen, this amazing, massive, destructive moment will take place kingdoms later. Nebuchadnezzar will be long gone by the time this stone is cut. But the ultimate meaning of the stone remained a mystery for a long, long time. There were various scriptural connections in Genesis and the Psalms and some other prophets about the stone and what it might be. But it wasn't until Jesus that its meaning became clear. You see, once one time, Jesus was teaching at the temple. The text says he was preaching the gospel. And he gets confronted by a group containing the chief priests and other religious authorities. So picking up Luke 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it, and let it out to the tenants and went into another country for a long while. And while the time came, he sent his servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also was wounded and cast out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. And perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they, speaking of the religious authorities Jesus was speaking to, when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then, is, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone on who... Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. But they feared the people. Here in Luke 9.20, Jesus teaches a parable with respect to his coming crucifixion. And it says that the religious authorities clearly understood Jesus was teaching this parable about them. Verse 16 records their disbelief about the message that is communicated. And verse 19 records their understanding that it's directed to them. And Jesus attaches to this parable two Old Testament texts. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then speaking clearly in the metaphorical language of Daniel 2, our text this morning, he says, that stone, the one the builders rejected, will itself be crushed, reference to his crucifixion, but will crush anyone it falls on or who falls on it. So what's the meaning of this ever-expanding stone? What is the connection between Daniel 2 and Luke 20 here? Pastor David Helm is very helpful, writing, 
Saying at the end of this parable, predicting his execution, Jesus is tying his own death to the stone that comes from heaven. He is the one cut by no human hand in Daniel 2.34, which brings down all human kingdoms and ushers in the eternal kingdom of God. With the cross and the resurrection comes the everlasting kingdom. Luke will go on in the book of Acts to show how the kingdom expands. It isn't through geopolitical rule, but through spiritual rule. Rule that pulled people out from their hearts of allegiance to self and to sin and into identification with Christ. It was the kingdom that had, by the end of Acts, subjected even Rome, the heart of the greatest empire the world had yet seen. It was a kingdom that a few centuries later had taken over that empire so that its own emperor worshipped the stone, the Lord Jesus. It was a kingdom that outlasted the Roman Empire and continues to this day. Church, it continues here this day. And what this means for you and me is this, that God has already set up his kingdom. In Christ's death, the eternal kingdom has come to rule over the whole world. The only way through the anxieties of this chaotic world in which we live, the only way to faithfulness that shines the light of God before the city of man is to see yourself as secure in Christ and his kingdom. To see yourself fundamentally as a citizen there rather than a citizen here. Which is why a text we preached from early, or last year, not earlier this year, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, tells us this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The meaning of the ever-expanding stone is that Jesus now and continually sits enthroned. And it is only in seeing that and identifying with that that we can fulfill the faithfulness of Daniel and that we can understand the meaning of their plea. Jesus sits on his throne, no matter the turmoil of this present day for you or for our world. He reigns today in grace and in truth. So let's pray. Father in heaven, you, your son, reigns. He sits enthroned, he has conquered the principalities, the rulers, the kings, the governments of this world. And they, whether good or evil, whether they know it or not, only serve, only exist because he allows. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray that we might have an increasing understanding of what that means for us. We pray that we might be increasingly setting our minds, setting the eyes of our hearts on heaven, on that kingdom where Christ is seated and the kingdom that is coming. Because in doing so, 
you, your spirit, your word, will free us, giving us a peace that surpasses all understanding. While the world around us gets increasingly chaotic, maybe increasingly hateful, maybe increasingly antagonistic, setting our hearts and our minds on you, on your son, guided by your word and by the power of your spirit, will save us and set us free. So we ask all of these things and we pray them in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.